I could ask people to take their seats. Let me just start by reminding uh, folks that uh, this is a series of lectures that we're filming. We're going to make them available through the MSU Library and Madison College for educational use. Um, and so turn off your cell phones and uh, whatever else uh, one ought to do, sneak out to the side if you want to grab some food. Um, the other thing is that uh, at the end of the lecture, we're going to take a five-minute break or so just to let people who have to go, go, and then we're going to have a, a question and answer period. Um, so I'm Sherm Garnett. I'm the dean of Madison College. We've been very proud to host these eight lectures. It's gone by uh, very fast. And as because this is the last of eight lectures, I did want to do a bit more uh, that less formal introduction, I think Professor Gandhi has heard uh, much about himself, um, and he's not the kind of person that uh, wants to hear much about himself. Uh, Thirteen books, soon to be fifteen. Um, the way he's responded to, in his own life, not, not only as an academic, but as a active uh, political and social uh, thinker and change agent with such grace and good humor and determination. And we're working to bring him back next fall for a course in lectures on the history of uh, South India, his current project. So I just wanted to share a couple of reflections tonight on these lectures on Mahatma Gandhi and his legacy, not with any pretension of being anyone who ought to comment on them, but simply as someone who's tried to listen uh, very attentively. The first is a real simple one. It doesn't apply probably to the Indian and Indian Americans in the audience, but just how important it is to learn uh, a non-Western history, to kind of come to terms with uh, the way the world is seen by others and to realize that there are just such amazing and inspiring things that have happened that are often uh, through our own uh, neglect and lack of attention outside our kin. Um, I do think that uh, the effort to bring Muslim studies to the campus, uh, the many languages we teach on campus, the area studies, things that we do in, in things like Professor Gandhi's lectures are very important to prevent us from being a little too insular and a little too sure of ourselves. That would kind of be true if we hadn't just had this election, which is sort of my second comment. Um, I'm not trying to surprise anyone by suggesting this election was uh, not our country's finest moment. There are different accounts of why, but there was a terrible meanness in the day-to-day -day cycle, and I think a drift away of consideration of the most serious policy challenges and their possible solutions. It doesn't appear to me that the time since the election has brought healing uh, in the tone it seems to have changed only superficially. I've heard many express despair, anger, and hostility. So as I've sat here and the lectures have obviously started when it was still an election and gone into the aftermath, I've, I've listened about uh, a story of far more serious challenges than we face, and I'm not trying to denigrate those challenges. But the challenge of colonial occupation of a country, of efforts to sustain by that occupier foreign rule through division, divide, and rule and violence, the overwhelming and abiding problem of the poor and disenfranchised, serious tensions between major religious groups, and the quite miraculous success of independence, but it being crowned by violence that probably moved more than 10 million refugees around and killed maybe a million or at least almost a million. So however much we suffer from serious problems, I think they pale in comparison to this set of challenges, the setbacks, the failures, the acts of violence or division. And similarly, it seems to me that the central threat of these lectures, Mahatma Gandhi, refused to admit defeat. He continued to work. He continued to gather around him followers who shared his views, and even those who did not. 
He continued to engage his opponents with constructive ideas and even love. He never quit. He was no more magnificent in his work, in my view, than in the personal response to communal violence of partition. Surely sober assessment must have concluded there wasn't much to do but send the police or send the very young military to suppress them if possible or at least to wait them out. Gandhi went with his followers to reconcile enemies, to use moral insight and a powerful belief in the capacity of human beings to overcome their worst instincts. He listened to the victims, confronted the violent with the same patience and call to reconciliation. Perhaps though Mahatma Gandhi would disagree we're not quite capable of, of that kind of uh, self-sacrifice or moral courage. But we ought to be capable of at least the same level, headedness, commitment to practical work, defiance of despair, and the belief that we can make things better. It is this, I believe, that has been the main sort of takeaway from this lecture, the, the sort of call and inspiration running through Professor Gandhi's beautiful lectures, beautifully written, beautifully delivered, but at the core of them, just beautifully thought out and presented. I certainly want to thank Professor Gandhi for reminding us of what we are capable of and the kind of resolution we need, especially now when faced with political challenges and disappointments. With that, I just want to express the college's gratitude and our gratitude to Professor Gandhi and his wife, Usha, for inspiring our students, reminding them of the high calling of public service, and to end this little uh, speech by turning the microphone over to Professor Gandhi. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dean Sherman Garnett, uh, for sponsoring this uh, series of lectures uh, and for your remarks just now. Uh, very thoughtful, very important remarks, so thank you so much for that. I want to thank the uh, Madison College team for all the support that uh, they have given uh, for several weeks to me. I won't name them all, but I want to name the uh, camera, light, sound, uh, teleprompter crew, because they have been just terrific too. Uh, there is Ed, there is Andy, there is Chris, there is Peter. Could you kindly rise so that we can all, 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 please. And then there is Peter also from James Madison, who is also a tremendous support to us. Uh, and there is Apurva. <laughs> Thanks to Apurva, for the very first time in my life, I have a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> but she has been amazing for all these lectures. So I, I do want to thank her. And I want to thank all of you for coming this evening. And I want to thank those of you who have come second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. We really appreciate this. Uh, so this is the last lecture, and that's the title. Uh, at the start of September 1997, when I arrived in the United States to begin what became a 15-year spell of teaching and research at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Princess Diana had just died in a car crash. Many were shocked and sad, and not only in Great Britain. Trying to portray her legacy, television channels in the US showed shots of her sons, 15-year-old William, 13-year-old Harry, dignified and photogenic, both of them. Looking at them, I thought of the lecture I was expected to give on the legacy of Gandhi who had died 52 years or almost two generations earlier. Even if I possessed their photographs, which I did not, I knew I could not present his 15 grandchildren, of whom I was one, or the many more great-grandchildren and say, look, here is Gandhi's legacy. That would not have worked 
even though if you ask me, the great-grandchildren and their children are quite dignified and photogenic. <laughs> Descendants would not fit the bill, in part because family first was not Gandhi's motto. Cheated for long by big men who nourished the ambitions of favorite offspring, the people of India honored Gandhi because his family did not come first with him. Steering ship India across dangerous waters, Captain Gandhi did not save the best lifeboats for his family. Saying that in him divine providence had given India a burning thunderbolt of truth, Gandhi's great friend and occasional critic, the poet Tagore, would add, Gandhi stopped at the threshold of huts of thousands of the dispossessed, like one of their own, spoke in their own language, and won the heart of India with his love. Raised in a privileged family in Rajkot in Western India, Mohan had learned as a boy to recite the family pedigree of which he was proud. When he was in his 70s, the hugs that Gandhi gave his grandchildren revealed his love for them, the flesh of his flesh. Yet some people thought that the star of destiny that pulled Gandhi like a magnet and drove him to serve the Indian people, they thought that that star distanced Gandhi from his biological family while bonding him with countless Indians who seemed to need him even more than his sons and grandchildren. They thought that the relationship between Gandhi and his sons, daughters-in-law and grandchildren was detached, disengaged, perhaps even cold. This was indicated to me, for example, by the legendary Aruna Asafali shortly before her death in 1996. Aruna is a celebrated figure in India's liberation story. A well-connected Bengali Brahmin whose brother had married Tagore's daughter, Meera. Aruna herself had married a North Indian Muslim lawyer, Asaf Ali, gone underground during mm -hmm. Quit India, become a hero, and fought until the day she died for equality and human rights. Not long before her death, Aruna and others, including my brother Ram Chandra, better known as Ramu Gandhi the philosopher, all of them concerned about challenges to India's pluralism, were meeting at the house in New Delhi where Gandhi had been assassinated 50 years earlier. To those gathered, Ramu, now deceased, spoke feelingly of our grandfather's last days. Listening to him, Aruna turned to me and said, I had no idea Ramu felt so deeply about Bapu's assassination. Well, he did, as did a great many others. Aruna was not alone in thinking that the relationship between Gandhi and his children and grandchildren was exactly like his relationship with every Indian. It was, and it was not. Blood did bring something extra. We deeply loved our grandfather because of the kind of person he was, and because despite the rarity and brevity of our times with him, a rarity and brevity connected to his prison going and his involvement with countless people, he was an affectionate grandfather. Since our father Devdas, Gandhi's youngest son, was based in Delhi, editing the largest newspaper there. My siblings and I saw a good deal of our grandfather while he spent ch chunks of his final years in Delhi. We bantered with him, walking to and back from his 5 p.m. prayer meetings in the Dalit settlement where he often stayed, or on the Birla house lawns, and on rare occasions we had one-on-one -on -one exchanges, as when he mocked a new pair of spectacles I was wearing while calling on him in the Balmiki colony of Dalits on Mandir Marg in New Delhi. Aware of his love of thrift, I was hoping he would not notice the new object on my face. But the old man was sharp. You have something new on your nose, he said. I was ready to fight back. You know I have weak eyes. I needed the new spectacles. And you also needed a new frame, he asked. One-on-one -on -one times were rare because in this final phase of his life, when freedom, partition, violence, and migrations descended simultaneously on India, Gandhi's hours and minutes were above all devoted to victims of violence, Hindu, Sikh, and Muslim victims, some of whom joined his multi-faith prayer meetings. Often present at these, I saw how my grandfather responded when, as happened on occasion, an angry Hindu, or more than one, objected to the recitation of the Quran's short opening chapter, Al-Fatiha. Surprised at his patience with the protesters, I would also at times wonder whether one day they would physically attack my grandfather. 
whose chest was barely protected with clothes and who had no bodyguards. Though telling myself that I should try to protect him, I was not present on the fateful day, January 30, 1948, when he was killed. Twelve and a half at the time, I was taking part in a school running event. Gandhi often appears in my dreams. There was a period about 20 years ago, that is, more than 40 years after he was gone, when in several consecutive dreams, I searched in different parts of Delhi for him. Until to my unspeakable joy, I found that he was alive, staying with one or two companions in a tiny but clean box-like shack on Panchkunya Road in New Delhi, not far from Paharganj, the sort of shack that refugees from West Punjab had used uh, in 1947 and for some years thereafter. The dream where I had found him appeared at least twice, felt utterly real, and was hard to shake off. He loved his grandchildren, and we loved him. But there was no question of his belonging only to us. The fact that the people of India possessed him, owned him, was a given. It was accepted. It made no difference to our feeling for him. That fact greatly weakens any case for identifying Gandhi's descendants as a major part of his legacy. For that, we have to go elsewhere. Before leaving the descendants, however, let me say in all fairness that his four sons and four daughters-in-law, there were no daughters, sadly, the 15 grandchildren of whom seven are still alive, four females and three males, and more numerous great-grandchildren have between them contributed well and honorably to the intellectual, social, and political life of India and also of South Africa, Great Britain, and the United States. To my mind, three things constitute the Gandhi legacy. Nonviolence as a weapon of struggle. Secondly, the independent nation of India. And thirdly, signposts for life today, anywhere on earth. As for nonviolence, I will speak of five famous persons who picked up that weapon after Gandhi and who went on to wield it with compelling power. Many others we know have also used that weapon. Thousands more, thousands more use it without our knowledge, most of them without any knowledge of Gandhi. In situations big and small, women and men daily strive for justice without violence or hate, adding to our world's stock of goodness. These not-so-famous women and men are the people whose deeds around us, in our neighborhood, perhaps even in our families, keep our spirits going. Let us think of such persons. As I speak also of Abdul Ghaffar Khan, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., the Dalai Lama, and Aung San Suu Kyi, to name them in the order of their birth. All five are persons I've had the privilege of meeting, and in some cases of knowing. Ghaffar Khan, 1890-1988, a Sunni Muslim from the subcontinent's northwest frontier province, a Pashtun whom the British imprisoned for 12 years, and Pakistani rulers for 15 years, was, as, as I said in the biography I wrote of him, an immensely tall figure with an absolutely straight back, a great nose, kindly eyes, and a permanent aura of nonviolent defiance. I was 10 years old when I first saw Ghaffar Khan in 1945, when he and his older brother, Dr. Khan Sahib, stayed for a few days in our home, a third-floor apartment in New Delhi. I saw him last in Bombay in 1987, when he was almost 97. His people called him Badsha Khan or Bacha Khan, meaning King Khan. Independence from foreign rule was one fire in his soul. Another passion of his was for ending the revenge code to which his Pashtun people were sworn. Moreover, non-Muslims were as important as Muslims to Badsha Khan, who declared in the late 1940s that he and his Pashtuns would protect the small population of Hindus, Sikhs, and Christians living in the overwhelmingly Muslim Northwest Frontier Province. Enthusiastic about his region's Buddhist history, this devout Muslim, who had exiled himself to Afghanistan in the mid-1960s, would proudly take Hindu visitors from India to Bamiyan to show them the great Buddha statues which the Taliban would detonate and demolish in March 2001. Wanting Pashtun women to study, work, and lead, Ghaffar Khan in 1930s too sent his daughter Meher Taj when she had barely entered her teens to study in England. And to the U.S. he sent his son Ghani Khan, who would become a famed painter, sculptor, and poet. 
to change Pashtun society and fight non-violently for Indian independence, Ghaffar Khan founded the Khudai Khidmat Gars, or Volunteering Servants of God, in 1929. In the following year, as part of the Salt March campaign, these Khudai Khidmat Gars, allied with the Indian National Congress and known also as the Red Shirts, faced the empire's armed and mounted policemen but refused to back down or hit back. It was an epic moment in India's freedom story. Seven years later, in 1937, the Khudai Khidmat were voted to power in the frontier province. Bhatsha Khan's older brother, Dr. Khan Sahib, became the province's prime minister. Ghaffar Khan's son, Ghani Khan, would later recall a conversation with an Englishman, a military and political officer called Colonel R.N. Bacon, who had confronted the Red Shirts in that classic struggle of 1930. Bacon told me, said Ghani, Ghani, I was the assistant commissioner in Charsadda. The Red Shirts would be brought to me. I had orders to give them each two years rigorous imprisonment. I would say, are you a Red Shirt? They would say, yes. Do you want freedom? Yes, I want freedom. If I release you, will you do it again? Yes. Bacon said, I would want to get up and hug him. Instead, I would write two years. In 1939, Ghaffar Khan would recall, the sight of an Englishman used to frighten us. Our movement has instilled fresh life into us. We have shed our fear and are no longer afraid of an Englishman or for that matter of any man. Englishmen are afraid of our nonviolence. A nonviolent Pashtun, they say, is more dangerous than a violent Pashtun. Remembering violent upheavals in the 1890s that crippled life in the frontier province during his boyhood, Ghaffar Khan would speak of the superior results of his movements. The British crushed the violent movement in no time. If a Britisher was killed, not only was the culprit punished, but the whole village and entire region suffered for it. The people held the violence and its doer responsible for the repression. In the nonviolent movement, we courted suffering, and the community did not suffer but benefited. Thus, it won the love and sympathy of the people. Seasoned imperialists like Sir Reginald Coupland assumed, in Coupland's words, that nonviolence would be almost unintelligible on the frontier where most men carry firearms and the maintenance of the blood feud is still regarded as a sacred duty. It was said that a male Pashtun baby arrived in this world with a rifle or sword in his hand. But when Ghaffar Khan asks Pashtuns to shed all weapons and join a non-violent struggle against the empire, they began to question also their destructive blood feuds handed down from father to son. Visiting the frontier in the 1930s, Halid Edib, the Turkish writer, found what she called a new interpretation of force. To her, this demonstration of nonviolent force, coming from strong and fearless men, as she put it, was very unexpected. It was achieved by Ghaffar Khan's success in linking nonviolence to Islam. Writing seven decades later, in 2003, the commentator Harold Gould contrasted the methods of Gandhi and Ghaffar Khan, which, in the words of Gould, brought down empires in South Asia with the walking bombs in the Middle East and Kashmir, whose self-detonations invite devastating retaliatory assaults on their innocent fellow citizens. Accused by pro-empire Pashtuns of associating with idol-worshipping Hindus, Ghaffar Khan responded with these words, If they are idol-worshippers, what are we? What is the worship of tombs? How are the Hindus any the less devotees of God when I know that they believe in one God? And why do you despair of Hindu-Muslim unity? Look at the fields over there. The grain sowed there has to remain in the earth for a certain time. Then it sprouts and in due time yields hundreds of its kind. The same is the case about every effort in a good cause. Here is what Ghaffar Khan said in Shab Qadar in the heart of Pashtun country in May 1947. Some people mislead you in the name of Islam. I feel it is my duty to warn you against future dangers so that I may justify myself before man and God 
on the day of judgment. I warn my extremist brethren that the fire they kindle will spread in wild blaze and consume everything in its way. His Pashtuns frequently failed to heed their Badshah Khan. Persisting with mutual jealousies, they allowed themselves to be misled. Still, they loved Badshah Khan as they had not for decades loved another Pashtun. Every new incarceration or exile of his only increased this love, which at his death in 1988 took the shape of an unforgettable pageant across the Khyber, from Peshawar to Jalalabad, with all sides in that region's seemingly unending conflicts, silencing their guns for his final rites. It was in the early summer of 1957 that I made my first trip to the US, in the course of which I was able to meet Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, I had two meetings with him, each very brief in Washington, DC. One was when, along with a couple of friends, I was trying to cross a street. From the opposite side emerged this quiet, serious young person. One of my companions mumbled something about me to him. I shook his friendly hand, and MLK Jr. continued on his way. That summer in 1957, though not yet as famous as he would shortly become, he received an award in Washington, D.C. When the award was given to him, I met him for a second time. Someone took a photograph. Here he is, along with Roy Wilkins and yours truly. In this picture, MLK Jr. is only 28. I'm just under 22. That was my last encounter with him. Shortly afterwards, I had a much longer conversation in Atlanta, Georgia, with his father, Martin Luther King, or Daddy King, as he was called. Outwardly, father and son provided a sharp contrast. Daddy King was outspoken, vigorous, and combative. His son was gentle, quiet, and at times seemingly passive. But there was a fire in his soul. We all know how that fire brought consciences to life all over the world. In February 1959, 20 months after my brief encounters with him, Dr. King visited India. On his return, he offered an assessment of Gandhi and of nonviolent struggle in a sermon at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. Every student of nonviolence, Gandhi or King, should read this remarkable sermon on March 22, 1959, by a king who had just turned 30. Here I will only quote a single sentence from it. Gandhi was able to achieve, said Martin Luther King, for his people, independence from the domination of the British Empire without lifting one gun or without uttering one curse word. Four years later, in 1963, Dr. King led a march on Washington and delivered his I Have a Dream speech. The Civil Rights Act came into being in 64, and in 65, after brutalities during the march led by Dr. King from Selma to Montgomery, America's blacks won the historic Voting Rights Act. How did King first hear of Gandhi? In 1950, two years after Gandhi's assassination, 20-year-old Martin, or Mike as he was called then, went to Friendship House in Philadelphia to hear a talk on Gandhi by Dr. Mordecai Johnson, president of Howard University. We have King's own words. Dr. Johnson's message was so profound and electrifying that I left the meeting and bought a half dozen books on Gandhi's life and works. Absorbing the books, Gandhi thought that Gandhi had, absorbing the books, King thought that Gandhi had shown a way both moral and practical for oppressed people to fight injustice. King, to use his words, saw Gandhi as lifting the love ethic of Jesus above mere interaction between individuals to a powerful, effective social force on a large scale. In an earlier lecture, I spoke, spoke of Gandhi's meeting in 1936 with four African-Americans, Howard Thurman, then dean of Rankin Chapel at Howard University, and his wife, Sue Bailey Thurman, and the friends of the Thurmans, Edward and Finola Carroll, sincere Christians, all of them. It was at this 1936 meeting in Bardoli, Western India, with the Thurmans and the Carrolls that Gandhi made what in the light of later history was clearly a prophetic remark. Well, if it comes true, it may be through the African-Americans that the unadulterated message of nonviolence will be delivered to the world. 
This far-sighted remark was the product of reflection and interaction, interaction with Howard Thurman and his friends, and earlier, earlier interactions starting in 1893 in South Africa with a remarkable sequence of African-Americans. Martin, or Mike, was just seven in 1936, but the forces of destiny that would catapult King and make him the symbol of nonviolent resistance all over the world, including in what for decades was the Soviet empire, were already at work. While he died 43 years after King was assassinated, Nelson Mandela was born in 1918, 11 years before King's birth. When Mandela first visited India in 1990, it was within months of his release from almost three decades of imprisonment. He was not yet South Africa's president. The long-standing ban on the party to which he belonged, the African National Congress, had only just been lifted. Much of apartheid was still in place, and the ANC remained a fighting machine. In 1990, Gandhi had been dead for 42 years, Mandela was 72, I was 55 and a member of the Rajya Sabha, the Indian Senate. The Indian government honored Mandela with the country's highest honor, the Bharat Ratna. A small plane was put at Mandela's disposal for seeing India. He chose to visit Agra, where the Taj Mahal is located, Banaras, known also as Varanasi, the holy city of the Hindus, and Calcutta, now called Kolkata, the large city in eastern India, from which the British once governed much of Asia. I asked for and obtained the opportunity to accompany the future president and Nobel laureate in these, to these places. I saw Mandela's extraordinary courtesy to innumerable autograph seekers. Some did not even bring books or notebooks. They just shoved pieces of paper under his nose. Carefully, painstakingly, he wrote out first their names, then the words, with best wishes, and finally, in a clear, legible hand, Nelson R. Mandela, adding the date. Inside the plane, when he was free from Indian crowds and, and could focus on South African matters, I saw the ANC commander in action giving crisp, concise instructions to four key lieutenants traveling with him. In Banaras, on a boat in the sacred river Ganga or Ganges, Mandela was the keenly curious student of cultures, straining his neck in every direction to see if any dead bodies were bobbing up in the water. He knew that a Hindu attached great value to dying at Banaras and consigning the body into the sacred Ganga. In Calcutta, where he spent two nights in the grand house built in 1803 for the empire's chief guardian, I observed Mandela's interest in the ordinary person. As he was leaving this mansion, Mandela sought out the servants who worked there, many of whom had confined themselves to unlit interior spaces. These employees were shy, and tradition had instructed them to remain anonymous. But Mandela went down the mansion's long corridors in search of them, drew them forward, shook hands with them, and thanked them. Towards the end of his India visit, I anchored a television program where a dozen or so young Indians asked Mandela questions. One of them, recalling that Mayor Dinkins of New York City had described Mandela as the Moses of his people, asked, how does Mandela describe himself? Mandela's immediate answer was, let me tell you about Oliver Tambo, president of the African National Congress. A focus on himself did not interest Mandela. He was drawn more to the battles he had to fight and to teammates in those battles. Before his almost endless incarceration, Mandela, along with his companions, had used lethal weapons in his struggle, something that Gandhi and King had never done. Alike, however, in embracing struggle, Gandhi, Mandela, and King were also alike in embracing reconciliation. When we consider the decades of apartheid and imprisonment he endured, Mandela astonishes us with his large, healed, and welcoming heart. Like King's America and Gandhi's India, Mandela's South Africa was a home for all its residents. On that 1990 visit, India's president, R. Venkatraman, told Mandela that he would be praying for him as he faced the tough days that lay ahead. 
Thank you, Mr. President, said Mandela, adding, and please pray also for Mr. de Klerk. Frederick Willem de Klerk was then the white president of a South Africa in transition. When he made his dramatic escape from Tibet in 1959, the Dalai Lama was only 24. That year I met him for the first time and noticed his curiosity about the whole wide world and also about cameras that could capture the world's wonder. I have met him more than a dozen times in the, near, in the nearly 60 years since. From the early years of his exile, I have marveled at the Dalai Lama's ability to turn the world's attention to Tibet when he cannot even set his foot on his homeland. He and his followers in exile, a people without a land, have stirred consciences all over the world, not for a month or a year, but year after year for six decades. Other people battle from their soil for self-determination and freedom, but often the world loses interest in their struggles. One reason for the Dalai Lama's success is his nonviolence, and a second reason is his interest in every person he meets. Since his struggle has been a very long one, many have met him more than once. I have personally observed the Dalai Lama's extraordinary ability to recall facts about persons he is meeting after a gap of years. Why wouldn't the world love one who really seems to love all the world's people? The Dalai Lama is also very human. I've heard him speak of his deep disappointments that the government of China does not trust him or the Tibetan people, and also of his sadness that China's power silences many people in the world. But the Dalai Lama takes a long view. He is aware that growing numbers of Chinese respect and admire him. And I know from personal knowledge of, of his warmth for the people of China. That he wishes to retain ties with China is public knowledge. Again and again, the Dalai Lama has declared that his nonviolent struggle for equality and autonomy is for a Tibet connected to China. Unlike her fellow Buddhist and fellow Nobel laureate, the Dalai Lama, Aung San Suu Kyi, or Do Suu Kyi as Burma's people call her, has witnessed a realization, partially at least, of her dreams. After long spells of imprisonment or house arrest, she is now the elected leader of her people, even if she cannot be called president. Both the Dalai Lama and Aung San Suu Kyi acknowledge a debt and a link to Gandhi. When the Dalai Lama received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989, he said, I accept the prize as a tribute to the man who founded the modern tradition of nonviolent action for change, Mahatma Gandhi, whose life taught and inspired me. Two years later, when Aung San Suu Kyi was awarded her Nobel in 1991, while in detention, she was represented by her husband, Michael Aris, who would die in 1999 and by their sons, Alexander and Kim. The committee selecting her for the award spoke of her commitment to democracy, nonviolence, human rights, and ethnic conciliation, of how Gandhi had inspired her, and added, it is our hope that Aung San Suu Kyi will see her struggle crowned with success. After six more years of house arrest, she was released in 1995 with severe restrictions. Shortly after this release, Alan Clements, an American Buddhist, was able to interview her a few times over a period of months. He asked her a question given by a Rangoon University student. Should Burma's democracy movement engage in an armed struggle rather than continuing in a non-violent way? Replied Suu Kyi. replied Suu Kyi, <clears throat> even if the democracy movement were to succeed through force of arms, it would leave in the minds of the people the idea that whoever has greater armed might wins in the end. Nonviolence is often the slower way, and I understand why our young people feel that nonviolence will not work, especially when the authorities in Burma are prepared to talk to insurgent groups, but not to an organization like the National League for Democracy, which carries no arms. But I cannot encourage this kind of attitude, because if we do, 
we will be perpetuating a cycle of violence that will never come to an end. When Clemens asked her if she was a good person, Suchi replied, I do try to be good, and she laughed. That is the way my mother brought me up. I'm not saying that I succeed all the time, but I do try. I have a terrible temper. I will say that I don't get as angry now as I used to. But when I think somebody has been hypocritical or unjust, I have to confess that I still get very angry. When I get really angry, I say to myself, well, I'm angry, I'm angry, I've got to control this anger. And that brings it under control to a certain extent. Asked if Burma's generals had managed to control her emotionally or mentally, Dosu Chi replied with words that recall Gandhi's insight. No, she said, and I think this is because I've never learned to hate them. If I had, I would have really been at their mercy. People ask me why I was not frightened of them, because I was not aware that, because I was not aware that they could do whatever they wanted to me. I was fully aware of that. I think it was because I did not hate them. You cannot really be frightened of people you do not hate. Hate and fear go hand in hand. Observing that because of the tremendous repression to which we have been subjected, her struggle needed a spiritual component, Suchi added that her love of literature, too, was of assistance. My other passion is literature, she said, but it seems to dovetail with politics. As the year 1997 was about to arrive, when India would mark 50 years of freedom, I requested a keynote from Aung San Suu Kyi for a conference I was helping to organize. Though living under restrictions, she faxed a statement that arrived on the morning of the 1st of January, bearing a handwritten message, Happy New Year. In her statement, she said, many countries have achieved self-government only to find that the rights and freedom of their people have come under greater restraint than in the days when they were ruled by an alien power. In Burma, despite half a century of self-government, good government is still somewhere in the nebulous future. She went on, as Gandhiji wrote, in truth, a government that is ideal governs the least. It is no self-government that leaves nothing for the people to do. That is pupillage, our present stage, she said. These words, Dao Suji continued, were written in 1925 referring to Gandhi's words, yet could well be applied to the state of present-day Burma, although it might be questioned whether pupillage is not too tender a word to describe the abject situation in which my country finds itself today under a military administration that leaves people with no role to play in their own government. She continued, we remain a nation in bondage after 49 years of independence. Then she again quoted Gandhi, real Swaraj self-government will come not by the acquisition of authority by a few, but by the acquisition of the capacity by all to resist authority when it is abused. That message from Aung San Suu Kyi was sent in 1997. I last met her in December 2014, two years ago that is, shortly before the elections that would make her the leader of the Burmese people. The eyes of her friends are on Aung San Suu Kyi, and their prayers are with her as she cuts a path through the tricky forest of a multi-ethnic Burma, which is still largely under army rule and which faces difficult ethnic divides. She works for a future of dignity and partnership for all its inhabitants. The independent nation of India also constitutes Gandhi's legacy. George Washington refused to become America's continuing president but will always be associated with American independence. Gandhi was perhaps the only leader of the 20th century's liberation movements in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East not to assume power at independence. But India's independence will always be joined to Gandhi. 27 years before his death, during a fascinating debate with Tagore, Gandhi described the texture of his nationalism. I do not want my house to be walled in on all sides and my windows to be stuffed. I want the culture of all lands to be blown about my house as freely as possible, but I refuse to be blown off my feet by any. In other parts of the world, 
The Mexican poet Octavio Paz pointed out, violent wars for independence had often become breeding grounds for warlords and for militarism, coups, uprisings, and civil wars. In India, the nonviolent movement for independence and Gandhi's unconcerned with personal power helped produce democracy. Everyone knows that independent India's imperfections are numerous and profound. Yet it is also true that the country has remained democratic all these 69 years. It is also true that the Indian state possesses a pro-poor tilt. And under the law, at least, all of India's inhabitants enjoy equal protection from the state. These positive features owe a good deal to Gandhi's lifelong efforts. The text of India's constitution was completed 22 months after Gandhi's death, but its essential features, democracy, equality, secularism, and pluralism, had become national pledges before Gandhi's death, pledges summoned in large part by Gandhi's exertions. If India alters its constitution and becomes a Hindu Rashtra, the Hindu state demanded by a small but passionate minority, that would certainly demolish a major pillar of Gandhi's legacy. This threat is not wholly unreal. Moreover, the Indian state's embrace of nuclear weapons, the widespread worship in, in, in Indian society of the god of money, the continuing recourse to violence to settle disputes and to bully the vulnerable, including Dalit women and men and Adivasis, inaction from the government when coercive groups threaten dissenters, the harshness in Indian prisons and in institutions like homes for the mentally unwell, all too real features like these have to be seen as a rejection of Gandhi's teachings. Still, what both state and society in India have absorbed from Gandhi is not insignificant. He inspires struggles in India against corruption and injustice for the environment and for human rights, struggles often waged in India in Gandhi's name and from venues linked to Gandhi's battles. India will remain a crucial site where Gandhi's legacy is either protected and augmented or damaged and diminished. Starting with the early 1990s, India has shown impressive economic progress. Hundreds of millions have crossed from poverty to a decent life, but other hundreds of millions remain in distress. In 1929, shortly before the Salt March for Independence, the American Christian thinker John Mott asked Gandhi what weighed most on his mind. In his response, Gandhi spoke not of alien rule, but of, to quote him, our apathy and hardness of heart, if I may use the biblical phrase, towards the masses and their poverty, unquote. Guideposts for our lives today, the third part of the Gandhi legacy, are available from how he lived his life, also from thoughts he spelled out. When we, study of the when we study the life of the man, an imperfect, flawed man, who famously said, my life is my message, we find an unceasing attempt to turn the searchlight inward, to reach great goals rather than find personal comfort or pleasure, to strengthen his team, and to make the vulnerable his priority. In him, we also find someone who puts his life on the line for his beliefs, including the belief that all human beings are equal, and that humanity's God, though differently addressed, is one and the same, who is, as who is as comfortable with truth is God as with God is truth, who successfully taught large numbers that revenge was both futile and folly, and who, born into a family of prestige and proceeding to command unprecedented influence in his large country, died cheerfully with these worldly possessions, a pocket watch, a pair of wooden sandals, a pair of spectacles, a wooden bowl for taking his nourishments, and gifted by a Japanese friend, three tiny porcelain monkeys who seemed to say, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Someone, in short, whose life is his message. It is not a minor legacy. As to what he said or wrote, let me end by randomly picking out of a large pool four quotations. You can decide 
whether or not they're relevant. In a speech in Johannesburg on 18th May 1908, Gandhi named the Africans, the Indians, the Chinese, the so-called colored race, and the whites living in South Africa, claimed he had studied the interracial question, and he concluded, quote, if we look into the future, is it not a heritage we have to leave to posterity that all the different races commingle and produce a civilization that perhaps the world has not yet seen? That vision of a commingled humanity was offered 108 years ago. Next, here is Gandhi speaking in 1928, 82 years ago, of what human beings unwilling to restrain themselves can do to planet Earth, even when they are Indians. God forbid, he said, that India should take to industrialization after the manner of the West. The economic impact of one single tiny island kingdom today is keeping the world in chains. If an entire nation of 300 million took to similar economic exploitation, it would strip the world bare like locusts. The third quote is his diagnosis for splits and divisions, a diagnosis offered a month before independence to a group of politicians who went to meet him. As soon as we differ from somebody ever so slightly or a misunderstanding arises, instead of meeting the person concerned and trying to find a solution, we take him to task publicly. This creates antagonism and parties and isms. Finally, 18 days before his death, Gandhi repeated what he had said numberless times in his life. Since they shared the same ground, India's Hindus and Muslims, India's non-Muslims and India's Muslims had to learn to live together. Doing so, they would help the world, which like India holds people of many faiths, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, Sikhs, and others, including atheists. Conversely, if Indians did not learn to live together, then in Gandhi's words of 12 January 1948, the loss of our soul by India, the loss of our soul by India will mean the loss of the hope of the aching, storm-tossed, and hungry world. Thank you. As I said earlier, we're going to take about a five-minute break uh, and then come back for questions for Professor Gandhi.